we're back into our Matthew series. So the sign's back up. We spent three weeks talking about the triumphal entry, the crucifixion, and then the resurrection of Jesus. And so now we're coming back to where we were, where we left off in the book of Matthew before we began that little three-week excursus into what happened leading up to the resurrection of Jesus. So today we're in chapter 8, starting in verse 18 through 22. That's our primary text this morning. Now, before we go there, I want to turn to the book of Ephesians, go to chapter 2, and just read you a couple of verses, because as we talk about this cost of discipleship, Jesus talks extensively about cost, that there is a cost. But I want this to stay in the back of your mind as we're going through the text today. Starting with verse 8, Paul writes to the Ephesian church this, very well known, by the way, passage, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So bear in mind as we're talking this morning that salvation is given freely by God, by His grace, through faith. We cannot earn what He has done for us. We need to bear that in mind. Now, as we begin to look at this morning's text, uh, as I was preparing and looking at the context of what was being recorded and communicated in Matthew chapter 8. It reminded me of being in Nicaragua in February. There were approximately uh, 20 people from Stillwater who went to Nicaragua in order to take uh, free medical clinics, free medical care, out into underserved areas. And uh, it was with Palmetto Medical Initiative, was the name of the organization out of South Carolina. They're now called One World Health. They've renamed themselves. Uh, This is probably at least the second or maybe the third trip that took place uh, with people from Sunnybrook and from Stillwater involved with this organization. They do a wonderful job. So, Zach, are the the photos available? Yes? No? I guess not. Uh, Well, I wanted to show you a few photographs of what happened in Nicaragua. The first one is uh, the photograph of the front of a church where there was a crowd gathered. And so uh, people got word ahead of time. And lots of people would come for, for uh, this medical care. We, we saw over 200 a day, which was an astounding number of people for such a small team. Uh, the one thing that I learned going to Nicaragua, although I learned if you're non-medical, you can still go and play a very valuable part. I learned that it is a wonderful way to go serve because you get to know people's names. You literally walk them through the process. You get very directly and closely personally involved with people. It's not like building a building or uh, serving food in a line or some of, some of the things, very worthy things that you can do on mission trips. It's very up close and personal. And I absolutely fell in love with uh, being in Nicaragua, and I hope to go back and do that again. But if you want to draw a crowd, send free medical care into an underserved area, right? That's right. Uh, so uh, people will come because they're suffering. They want their suffering to be alleviated, So that's what Jesus was doing just before this text that we're about to look at. He was, uh, many were brought to him who were oppressed by demons. He cast out the spirits of the world with a word. He healed, there we go, he healed all who were sick. No, can you go back real quick? Maybe not. Yes, no, I don't know. (laughs) Okay, this was the church where we served the second of three days. Uh, And so the people on the left are waiting for prescriptions from the pharmacy. And the people on the right are being registered. And then inside, there's a photograph of people sitting in chairs uh, that are waiting on triage. So once registered, you would sit and wait until you were called to come to see a nurse. The nurse would do an assessment. And then they would direct you from there to either see a physician, to the pharmacy. And that's kind of how the process worked. 
So it was, it was wonderful. Uh, so I would encourage everyone to consider doing something like this. It was great. And there's a photograph of a 100-year-old woman that we served. She was born in 1915. Eh, it's a little too much red, but that's okay. But she just had so much light in her eyes. Uh, I was amazed uh, to see that this, this is the kind of people we were serving in very, very underserved areas. So the crowd gathered, and now we start with verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. They were going to cross the Sea of Galilee to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Next. Now, when I first read this passage, when I first became a believer, I was really puzzled by this. I mean, does it, I don't know if it strikes you odd, but, but Jesus basically is saying, this guy who had been following him around, right? So he knew that this was an itinerant ministry, that Jesus was traveling the countryside doing ministry. And Jesus basically says, the animals are taken care of, but I'm a homeless dude. I'm homeless. Uh, so it was very puzzling to me that he would say that. I didn't really understand this. But if you circle back and you look at who this person was and how he addressed Jesus, you get insight into what he was looking for. Scribes had a very special skill. In the ancient world, literacy was unusual. So people who could read and write often developed knowledge and expertise that gave them great influence. They worked in royal courts. They worked in villages. So they would write down royal proclamations, everything down to a contract for the sale of land. And they provided a very valuable skill. They were a valuable resource. The scribes, as you may remember, aligned themselves with the religious leadership against Jesus toward the end of his ministry, which led to his crucifixion. So the scribes generally are not portrayed in the New Testament in a very favorable light. But for whatever reason, this accomplished, uh, learned person had decided to attach himself to Jesus. And he makes this declaration, I'll follow you wherever you go. There are no constraints or limits on what I'm willing to do to follow you. Now, why would he do that? Well, there's, this is how it worked in these days in Israel. If you wanted to be a rock star, then you wanted to be a rabbi. They were the most learned and influential people in the culture. The way you became that way is to attach yourself to another rabbi that you would follow around and you would learn from. And then eventually, you would have your own following. So you would have prestige, power, influence, uh, worldly wealth. This was the way to climb the ladder in ancient Israel. That's what the scribe was looking for. And you get additional insight by looking at the word that he used when he approached Jesus. He calls him teacher. Now, is that wrong? You can shake your head yes or no. Was Jesus a teacher? Yeah, yeah, he was. Jesus was a teacher. So it's not an inaccurate thing to say to Jesus to say teacher. Here's the interesting thing. If you look through the Gospels at people that address him as teacher, they're the people that oppose him, the people that try to trap him, the people that don't believe in his divinity, the people that are skeptical of him. So to say teacher to him was to look at Jesus in a very worldly sort of blind way and not understand his mission at all. It was to think of Jesus as a resource that you could use to get what you want. So teacher, I'll follow you anywhere. And the unsaid, the unsaid uh, subtext of that was, and someday, because you're doing this special, amazing thing, then that's going to be cool for me, because I'm going to be something special and really powerful and influential. 
And Jesus basically with this reply says, I'm not offering you what you're looking for. I don't have a base of operations. I don't have worldly possessions. So he cautions the scribe, if you want to follow me, you're not going to get the thing that you think you're going to get by doing it. There's something else going on here. The text continues. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. In the parallel passage in Luke, it literally says, follow me now. There is an urgency and an immediacy to the command that Jesus is giving to follow him. But this guy says, first, let me. First, let me go deal with something that would have been very important in ancient Israel. When someone died, that was something that life stopped. And they, they dealt with it. They took care of it. So we don't know by saying, let me uh, bury my father, whether his father was at death's door and he needed to take care of that, or whether his father had just died and he needed to put him in the tomb, or whether his father had been dead for a while and they had a custom after a year of taking the bones out of the tomb and moving them to an ossuary where the remains were just the bones were, were stored. Could have been any of those things. We don't really know from the text. It also could have been, some commentators believe, this guy was telling Jesus, I want to wait till my father dies so I can get my worldly inheritance. And then I'll follow you. Like once, once I have enough money in my, in my IRA and my 401k, then I'll follow you, right? Because then I don't have to rely on you to take care of me. I can rely on myself. It may have meant that. We really don't know. But here's the thing. It could mean any of those things and the relevance and meaning of Jesus' reply is the same regardless of any of those things. This other disciple, person who was following Jesus around, said, I have a priority higher than following you. Now, what are the priorities in your life? I have wrestled with this. I, I tell you, I have wrestled with this. What is it that I have attached myself to, that I identify with, that I try to control that I try to own, that I try to force an outcome with, that I haven't relinquished to Jesus, that I actually put before him in the way I speak, in the way I decide, in the way that I feel. Now, hey, as Christians, we know the right answer, right? Oh, no, no, Jesus comes first. That's an easy thing to say. If we read the script of our life and followed a video of every day that we live, what would it look like, though? Sometimes I think the way we live doesn't match up with the right answers that we know to give. Now, what both of these people had in common was they were demanding the kingdom on their own terms. They weren't content to let Jesus define what the terms of the kingdom are. They wanted it on their own terms. One wanted worldly things. The other wanted it to be a lower priority than things that he felt like he needed to do. But the king sets his own terms for the kingdom, does he not? Somebody say amen. He does. Thank you. Lots and lots of passages in the Gospels where Jesus describes what it means to follow him, what that looks like, how it works. One of my favorites is in John 15. So I'm going to turn to John chapter 15. The text won't be up there, but if you have your Bible, you can follow along. John chapter 15. Here Jesus describes what the relationship between the king and the members of his kingdom looks like. Absolutely one of my favorite parts of the Bible. Starting with verse 1. I am the true vine, 
and my Father is the vine dresser. The true vine being a, a source of life. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me. And this word abide is repeated in this passage over and over. It could be translated remain or continue. It's this idea of continuous, unbroken fellowship. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you. Unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides, remains, continues in me, and I in him. He it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing that will last, nothing that will stand. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. It would seem that Jesus takes this abiding relationship, this life-giving, continuous connection between himself and his followers very seriously. Likewise, those who claim the attachment of Jesus but aren't bearing fruit, that don't have this life-giving relationship, there's a very stark contrast, and it's a very sobering thought that those branches are thrown away and burned. Now, I burned a pile of brush this weekend. I had a hose. My wife was very nervous, but we didn't have any grass fires. It was okay. But it was a pretty, pretty big, intense fire for a while. And guess what was left over when I was done? A pile of ash, like a powder. I mean, there was nothing. When you burn brush, it is utter and complete destruction. Jesus is saying here that those who have a life-giving relationship with me will live, and those who don't are going to be utterly destroyed. Now, is there, a, is there a cost to having this relationship with Jesus, this fabulous life that he gives? In fact, the Bible says that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead will give life to our mortal bodies. I mean, that's an amazing thought when you think about the power that the Father used to raise him from the dead. And by giving us the Holy Spirit, we have that same power in us. It is a thing to be experienced, a thing to be lived, not an idea just to think about and agree with. It literally gives life to our mortal bodies. That's a pretty stunning thing to, to imagine, a pretty amazing thing that God gives. Part of the cost is described down here. If the world, well, sorry, let's go to verse 20, same chapter. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who That's the rub, isn't it? That really is the rub with the world. They don't know the one who sent Jesus, and they don't know the one who lives in us. Now, as Melissa said, we're not, we're not at threat of being persecuted violently now. I'm not standing here sort of looking at the door, expecting, you know, the police to come storming in and shut us down and haul me off to jail because I'm preaching the gospel. I, I, that's just not even, doesn't even seem like a possibility right now in this country. There are, however, those who are being subjected to a genocide by people that are opposed to the gospel. 
Now, but everybody has one thing in common, regardless of where they are on this spectrum. And you see it described in Romans chapter 8, in two little verses, 7 and 8. I'm going to read that very quickly. It says this. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They can't do it. They have no ability to submit to his law. Now, I reflected back on encounters that I've had, and you know, no one's ever threatened to punch me in the throat or poke me in the eye because I was a believer. I've never suffered any threat of violence. But I'll never forget a conversation that I had when I announced to the company where I worked that I was leaving to join the staff here. It was a little over 10 years ago. And I'm not sure anybody fully understood what was going on, but at a company Christmas party, a man who was uh, in a very high position in the OSU Business School, who was married to one of our executives, who was socially adept, good-looking, very successful, quite wealthy, very influential in his circles, learned, I'm certain he had a PhD, uh, this guy had everything going for him. And he walks up to me and very awkwardly attempts to I don't know, commend me or something? I don't know what he was trying to do, honestly. It's like, oh, you're doing this weird, noble thing. And, and, and he did say one thing that I knew was true. He said, I could never do that. And I was think, I'm just standing there thinking to myself, you're right, you could never do it because you have absolutely no idea what motivates a believer to do what a believer does. Like following Jesus makes no sense to people in the world. He was building his kingdom. That's what his life was about. Now, I'm sure he was very polite and he was very nice and he smelled good. And, you know, he took a shower and he shaved and he dressed well. Like the world would look at it and go, man, that guy's awesome. I, mean, I guess in that respect, he was. He was great. He was very smart. He was very successful. Probably the kind of guy you'd like to hang out with. I'm sure he's into, I don't know, all kinds of fun and interesting things. And he was beyond clueless what to say to me. Because his mind is set on the things of the flesh. All he knows is building his worldly kingdom. That's all he knows. And in the end, it's not going to go well for him in judgment. And as, as badly as I wanted to try to explain it to him, I knew that at a Christmas party, uh, him coming up to me and trying to, it was, it was hopeless. I just thought, this isn't the moment. This isn't the time. I just said, thank you. Because he was trying to be kind. He just didn't know how because he thought I was joining the Peace Corps and doing some noble humanitarian thing. And that's not what it was at all. So there, there is sacrifice involved, right? I mean, there, you do give something up when you follow Jesus. You do give something up. Now, we're going to get to what that looks like. But it cuts both ways. There, there's a cost either way. So uh, let's go look at Matthew chapter 7. Now, this is just prior to today's primary text. And... Jesus is talking about final judgment. So between 21 and 23, he's talking about people that engage in religious activity. I cast out demons, and I, I performed all these miracles, and I did all this great stuff for you, Jesus. And he says, I never knew you. Like, get away from me. Depart from me. Talk to the hand, because the Savior ain't listening. This, this is disturbing to stand up and preach and then read this, right? Because you, gotta, you better go back and do a heart check. Like, okay, so 
So how do I not be this guy? Because I don't want to be the guy that Jesus said, I never knew you. So he's talking about final judgment. All right, keep that in mind as I read the next passage. Starting in verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine, words of mine translates to his teaching, to his commands. And depending on how you count the commands of Jesus, there's somewhere between maybe 40 and 50 in the New Testament, things that he commanded his followers to do. If you hear them and you do them, you will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell and great was the fall of it. In the parallel passage in Luke, it literally says that house is totally destroyed. Now, I used to think this was about uh, making it through the storms of life. You know, if you have Jesus, you can, you can buck up when it's tough. You know, he's going to see you through. Now, that, that is true. I think there are many wonderful promises in the New Testament. There's no doubt in my mind that having the mind of Christ, having the Holy Spirit giving me life, motivating me, helping me understand my purpose, those things clearly give me an eternal perspective that helps me look past the storms of life, that strengthen me when I'm in the midst of a struggle. But I still struggle. I still have pain. I still experience disappointment. It's still hard sometimes. So while that is true, that's not the primary point of this text. He's talking about final judgment here. The ultimate flood, which is God judging between believers and unbelievers. So Jesus is equating hear and do with making it through that judgment well and hearing and not doing with not surviving that judgment, the judgment of God. Ominous, ominous words. Now, remember what I read at the very beginning in Ephesians chapter 2? Salvation is a free gift of God. You can't earn salvation. And yet Jesus, throughout the Gospels, says, there's a cost to following me. So we need to understand the difference between what Paul says, which is, I can't merit this by doing something. I can't earn it. But it does cost me everything to follow Jesus. We'll circle back that, to, that, to that in a minute and try and be a little more clear about how you square those two things. But this is not primarily about this life. In fact, salvation is more than just avoiding judgment, Right? Uh, we're not particularly a hellfire or brimstone preaching church here. Not particularly. Uh, but we don't avoid the texts that talk about judgment or hell or those things. There's something far better to think about than I'm going to say my Hail Mary prayer and hope that in the end I make it past the judgment because I prayed a prayer one time or I, I see that hand, I raised my hand and the pastor saw it. So, hey man, I'm, I'm saved. I mean, that's really not how we see the scriptures, not how we understand the scriptures here at all, at all. Salvation, having the kingdom, being a believer, following Jesus, being Christian. Those are all roughly equivalent things. When you say one or you say the other, you're basically saying the same thing. We don't believe that being a Christian is something different than being a disciple. 
is something different than having the kingdom, is something different than following him. It's, it's all one and the same thing. And so now let's go to the back end of this section called the present kingdom. Let's go to Matthew chapter 13 and read a couple of very short parables. This is the upside of the story, so now we can all get happy about what we're about to read about here. There's two very short parables, parable of the treasure and the, and the pearl. Starting in verse 44 of chapter 13, it reads like this. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like, is like treasure. Think about that. Having salvation is like treasure. Following Jesus is like treasure. Having the spirit is like treasure. Being a branch that is attached to the vine is like treasure. Hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. He gave up everything because he found something of transcendent value. It brought him joy. It was fabulous. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, in both of these parables, the kingdom of heaven is characterized as something of surpassing, complete, and transcendent value. But there's, there's nothing more valuable than a human being having the kingdom of God, having Jesus as your Lord, Him giving you the life-giving presence of the Holy Spirit, changing your mind, changing your heart, giving life to your mortal body, bringing you into the fellowship of the saints, being part of the church, giving you a family 10, 100 times what you had before you came to Him. It has a cost, but it's worth it. The thing that's perhaps not so clear is the sacrifice involved in both of these parables by the way, sacrifice is just giving up something that you see as being of value for something that you believe is of greater value. That's a sacrifice. I have this. It has a certain value. But there's something that I perceive to be of greater value. So I'm willing to give this thing up in order to have that. So what is this thing that we're called to give up? I don't think it means literally sell all your worldly possessions. We do have one example where Jesus tells a rich young ruler, that's what you need to do. But that wasn't for all of us. Now, some of us may need to do that. I don't know. That, that, that depends on how the Lord is working out the salvation in our particular lives, the issues that we have that are getting in the way of following Him. But in the parable, they're selling everything they have. What is that? Well, go to Luke chapter 9. Jesus actually teaches in a way on something that I think gives us insight into that. Now, you guys get that these are, all, these are all the words of Jesus we're looking at today, right? This is the words of Jesus that we're reading here. That's important. He said to all, this is starting at verse 23, chapter 9, if anyone would come after me, would, would follow me, would, would claim me, would be a Christian, would be a believer, would be a disciple, fill in your favorite noun or description of what it means to follow him there. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. 
But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? To save your life is to try to control your life. It is to build your own kingdom. It is to force things to turn out the way that you think you want them to turn out. That's what it means to save your life. You're holding back control from Jesus. And as you reflect back on this polite but very awkward conversation at the Christmas party, I know that man was saving his own life to gain the world. That's what the world is about. He who has the most toys when he dies wins, right? You've heard that many times. It's utter futility. It's the height of foolishness to pursue a life that is only about that. So the question here is, who ultimately gets control? Who gets control? Well, I'll tell you, in the end, Jesus is going to take control. I mean, that is going to happen. It's, it's inevitable. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. The question is, do we choose him now or not? Do we follow him now or not? Now, I was talking to Ryan Vincent uh, earlier this week about trying to communicate this. Right, Ryan? And your life group was having a conversation, as I remember you telling me. How do you communicate this truth to a child? That you can't earn this gift, but it's going to cost you everything. How do you square those two things? And I thought the illustration was brilliant. Give his son Matthew, a three-year-old who loves candy and is high speed all the time, ten pennies. And you identify a gift that that he really, 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 really wants that's totally out of reach. He could never, he can't buy it. He can't, he's a three-year-old. What's he going to do? He doesn't have ten dollars, much less a hundred dollars or whatever the cost of this gift would be. But a loving father will buy that gift and freely give it to him. He can't earn it. He can't buy it. But then he requires those 10 pennies. It's going to cost Matthew everything he has right there to get that gift. It is a beautiful exchange where the father goes and does something that is so far beyond our reach that we could never attain it. Salvation is a free gift by the grace of God. But it costs us everything. It costs us our attachments our hearts, our affections, our decisions, our belongings, our bodies. Everything belongs to God. He bought us with a price. He went to the cross. He paid a huge price. See, salvation isn't free. It cost God his son going to the cross. That's a very high price. So to, to say that, hey, salvation is free and, you know, you say a prayer and awesome. That's all there is to it is literally heresy. That is not biblical teaching. It is not biblical thinking. It ignores lots and lots of teaching in the New Testament. No, it's a relationship that gives life. It's daily. And it reaches deep down into your soul, into the way you think and see everything. All of your relationships, all of your possessions, how you invest your time, how you invest your treasure, where you give your skills, The words you speak and the way you interpret everything that you do are all affected by this. 
The kingdom of God is of supreme, transcendent value. There's nothing that could even come close to the value of knowing Jesus and being saved. So I want to return to Ephesians chapter 2 one last time before we close. There's one more verse that's worth reading just after 7 and 8. Or 8 and 9, I guess. Yeah, it was 8 and 9. So let me reread 8 and 9 just as a, a refresher. For by, the grace, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So let's not confuse the fact that Jesus tells us that you must do these words. When you hear them, you must do them. The doing of them is the bearing of fruit. It is the working out. It is the proof of our salvation. It's not how we earn it. We can't earn it. So let's not confuse those two things. It is a free gift that costs you everything. Verse 10 says this, For we are his workmanship, something made to be beautiful and useful, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Brothers and sisters, we are to be fruit-bearing, life-giving, light-shedding beings who are living for the king and who are advancing his kingdom by being obedient to the one who called us and saved us. We have a calling. It is a calling to follow Jesus. That's our calling. And everything else is worked out from there. And can I tell you, it is well worth the cost. Let's pray. Father, you have set before us life and joy. You have set before us purpose and meaning. You've set before us eternity with you. Father, may we find it in ourselves by the power of your Spirit to let go of those things that we continue to try to control, that we let go of those things that we withhold from you for fear. You are more faithful and trustworthy than any being in the universe. Teach us to trust you. Teach us to follow you well. And teach us to share that with others that they might do also. Glory to God and thank you, Father, for this time we've shared this morning. And may we live and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Remember, there is a simulcast this Friday and Saturday about adoption and fostering. Uh, if you're interested, Randy Butler is right in the back. Uh, Lightbearers is out there. There will be folks up front. If anything that I said today has been thought-provoking for you or challenging and you need to further process it, come on up front. We'll have a conversation about it. All right? God bless you. Go be the church.